So the elders decided not to renew the lease at our space in um, Bayshore Plaza, okay? Now, we need to give them 120 days notice. So what that means is we need to let them know at the end of January because we won't, be ha we won't have access anymore effective June 1st, okay? So it's not that we're getting kicked out tomorrow, but we, do, we did not see it seem to make any sense to renew our lease when we haven't met there in 10 months. Um, and pay $7,000 a month, so, which you can't give, we can't get back. So anyway, so here's the deal. For the foreseeable future, we're going to be staying mobile like this. Now, we don't know what that means. Uh, the Two Mile has graciously allowed us to continue to use this space. In a year, maybe we'll be meeting in a high school. Maybe we'll be meeting in your backyard. I don't know what the Lord will do, but we want to let you guys know that for the foreseeable future, we're going to have family-integrated service. And the elders love family integrated service so much, you may not, but we love it so much and we love sitting at tables so much that even were we to find a quote perfect place tomorrow, we are not sure we would even reinstitute something like elementary. We may introduce things like nursery because we understand that's a pressing need, but we really do like the idea of family integration. And, I, and from what most of you have told us, you did not like it too much the first few months, but you do like it now more and more. And so we're going to learn how to do that better, right? And we're going to need you guys to help us so that we can grow in discipling our families in this, in this changing world. I will say this, because I know that some of you are going to say, listen, well, there's a property here, and there's this there, and we can build a building here, and we can... I'm just going to throw myself completely out there. I believe, at the risk of sounding like a weirdo, um, there is an expiration date on church as we know it in terms of the idea of the 1,000-person the auditorium and the church of 2,000 people with the $2.5 million budget and the 40 staff. The clock is ticking on that model. And everything that I've read from gurus who study this stuff across denominational spectrums are saying that the way of the future is going to be small, whether that's congregations of 40 or whether it's churches that are simple and neat in homes. Um, even some of the big mega churches are transitioning to multi-site that meets in homes instead of multi-site that meets in campuses. And so I don't feel any peace, and the elders, we're all in agreement, about embracing a model that probably peaked 20 years ago. Are you guys tracking with me? And so um, we just need to pray for wisdom and see what the Lord does. We are actively praying about whether it would be beneficial to have a weekly space, like a space that primarily gets used Monday through Saturday for things like discipleship groups and trainings and prayer meetings and student men and stuff like that. So we are praying about those things, um, but that's just where we're at. And it, well, any of the elders would be glad to talk with you if you have questions. Seriously, don't be shy because this is all uncharted territory for for not just us, but for most of the country. But by the grace of God, Revolve has thrived. Well, today we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And the sermon is titled, The What, Why, and How of Election. And so um, we're talking about a topic that's a little bit controversial. I want you to know that Today, my, game, my goal is to focus on the beauty of these doctrines rather than to dissect it and exhaust it. And so for some of you, you're going to be frustrated that I didn't address certain things, 
and you're going to wish we went deeper. Um, there's other times for that. And for others, this is going to be a new concept. And my prayer this week has been that you'll focus on the beauty of what we're talking about rather than getting lost in nuance and questions, okay? And so 1 Peter 1, 1 to 5. Now, just so you know, I, I thought about having this printed out, but it just seemed like a lot of paper. When I study things like this, your, your Bible translators have done a great job, especially with more literal translations like the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version. And so when you see things like commas, you have to remember that commas are there because of syntax and grammar, and that helps you dissect the passage. And so in some of the Bible studies that I lead, one of them we lead at noon, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, um, we talked about how to take those commas and basically outline passages so you can see what are propositions and supporting propositions so you can track the flow of thought. And so what I'm going to do today as we talk through this is kind of model that for you verbally, but it might be hard for you to picture without something in front of you. But First Peter 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, for those of you who started going through the Right Now Media um, what's in the Bible and the message on First John for, or First Peter for kids, you already kind of saw maybe where some of these directions are going, some of these passages are going. Remember, if you haven't done that, it really is an excellent resource. Even if you don't have kids, frankly, it's an excellent resource. Um, it's on Right Now Media. We can get you connected on there if you are not yet, but you can search for First Peter, and I think it's called uh, Where Does Hope Come From? And so look for that. So in verse 1, we saw Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to those who are elect, which means chosen, exiles, in the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's Turkey, basically. We talked about this last week. Last week, we looked at the idea that Peter is writing to believers, followers of Jesus. He calls them elect, referring to the fact that they are God's chosen people. That's what we see in the Old Testament. And the emphasis here is that God chose them, not that they chose God. We saw, we saw that in Israel, how it says that I, did, I chose you, Israel. You didn't choose me. I chose you, not because you're the biggest or the strongest or the brightest or you have the most chariots, but I chose you because I loved your forefather, Abraham, and made a promise to him. That's good news for us because it means that God doesn't love you based upon merit. That God doesn't love you because you check all the boxes. And when we start buying into that lie that God loves me more if we are ultimately forgetting the gospel. And we're forgetting the good news that we see in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that this is a gift of grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
Israel was an object lesson of that reality for us who are goyim, who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews, as we are folded into the family of Abraham by faith. And so that was what we talked about last week. But what was the basis of God's choosing? If it wasn't because of merit or size or stature, what is the basis of God's choosing both Israel as well as those who believe today? And we see in verse 2, it says right here, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, common. So we're going to stop there. And so the question we see here, rather, is that the basis of God's choosing is according to the foreknowledge of God. And so the question that you need to ask is what? What does foreknowledge mean? This is just good biblical hermeneutics, interpretation. What does foreknowledge mean? Well, what does foreknowledge mean? Before knowledge, does it mean that God looked ahead and he saw the future? And then based upon what he saw, he chose someone based upon what they would do? That is what a lot of people believe that foreknowledge means. Some believe that to be true. Entire denominations, brothers and sisters who love Jesus and will be with us in glory. But if you look at Israel as an example, which is what Peter expects us to do when he uses this language, the elect exiles in diaspora or dispersion, then we need to remember that it wasn't because of merit or even choice for them that God chose Israel. Israel didn't choose God. And so, therefore, he didn't foreknow their decision and say, oh, because they're going to choose me, I'm going to choose them. On the contrary, Israel rejected God after being chosen by God. And so, despite all of the things that God foresaw would happen, he chose them nonetheless. So, what does foreknowledge mean? It has more of the connotation of relational affection than looking forward and seeing into the future. I'll give you some examples of how this word is used in the Old Testament. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he was a good Amish boy, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This is God speaking of Israel. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. Not the way that we think of the word English. We know that God knows all people and all things, and he's familiar with all of the nations. We know that God knows more than simply Israel. He knows all, but he says poetically in this prophetic book, Amos, Israel, only you have I known. It conjures up for us images of intimacy. And indeed, in the Old Testament, this word can be used to describe intercourse. God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I foreknew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Consecrated also can be translated as sanctified or made holy, which will be important for our next verse. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so God foreknew Jeremiah by having a plan for him, by having a purpose for him, and by loving him. This is what it means to be foreknown, that God chose you and others out of a place of previous 
affection for you, of pre-love, as it were, or pre-care, covenantal faithfulness. In other words, what is the basis for God's choosing? God chooses because he loves. That's what we need to focus on here. Now, we have world illustrations to help us understand these things, the same way that a parent adopts from a faraway country because of love, not because they have some guarantee of what's going to happen in the future, but from a basis of pre-loving of a child they've never met, they make the decision to adopt from pre-affection, from pre-love, from a foreknowing. Kids, I tried to think of an illustration that you could relate to, and the one that I could come to is it's like going to a store where the, the shelves are full of stuffed animals, and looking at all of those stuffed animals, you choose which one you will love and show affection to, and that you will cuddle with, and all of those sorts of things. Play with it and enjoy it. God's foreknowing, his pre-loving is the basis of his choosing. It's not his seeing in advance of your good merit. He chooses because he loves. But how? That's why there's a comma. How does God make this choosing effective? How does he bring it to reality? And this is what we read in the sanctification of the Spirit. Interestingly enough, that word sanctification is the same word that's used in Jeremiah 1.5 when he says, before I formed you, I knew you and I consecrated you. But what does it mean? Well, you could alternatively translate it, though it's a little bit more awkward, by the making holy work of the Holy Spirit. So how did God choose me? By the making holy work of the Spirit. See, God pre-loved us. That's why he sent his Son. God so loved the world. God demonstrated his love towards the world, which John defines as the kingdom of Satan, by sending his Son. God pre-loved us and therefore chose us. And what that choosing looked like is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to make you holy. Now, hear me, because this is a major cultural misunderstanding. Holy does not mean better. Holy does not mean better than. The word holy means literally to cut and to separate. Like you have a big lump of dough, and you cut off a piece, and you push it to the side, and you make it holy for a specific purpose. Holy doesn't mean better than. That's that holier than thou is a wrong concept. Holy means set apart for a particular purpose, specifically consecrated or sanctified for a spiritual purpose. So God sends his spirit because of his love to set you apart for spiritual reasons. That what that looks like on the ground is that God begins drawing you. God begins putting spiritual interests and questions within your heart. God begins giving you eyes to see the way that he moves. He begins giving you, yes, he begins giving you ears to hear what he is saying. He is inviting you effectively by his spirit. Effectively is a key word. See, the implication of all of this is that it's his work. 
It's his choosing from love. It's the sending of his spirit to draw and to woo. God loved you by his own decision, which is why he sent his son. God chooses us to love. He chooses to love us from his own desire to give affection and to be glorified. And then he, what brings that choice to reality is the way the spirit changes and transforms and regenerates and draws and brings to life. But why? That's why all of these commas are important, because what Peter is doing is he's giving you all of these answers and separating them with clauses. But why? What purpose? What is the purpose of his choosing? And as you look now at the grammar, what you realize is that the things that we just discussed are actually in a side. And to the to elect, how God has made us elect, he says, to those who are elect, everything after that up until this point has been in a side. So for what purpose are they elect? He says, to those who are elect, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. And so that is the flow of Peter's, of Peter's argument grammatically. And so Peter gives two reasons that God chose you. The first one is this, for obedience, elect for obedience to Jesus Christ. See, God chose you that you would obey Jesus. And don't get me wrong, that falls into two main categories. The first category is this, the obedience of belief. That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Jesus said that if we love him, we will obey him. And he said, we will do the will of, of his father. And he says, and what is the will of my father? To believe in the son. And in believing, have life. See, the primary work of obedience to Christ that we are called to is what? Say it out loud. Belief. That is the primary work of obedience to which we are called. But our faith, our belief is an active faith. It's an active faith that we have. See, Jesus isn't a myth to believe, but a king to follow. And if you believe the king is real, you will follow him, obey him, and heed his call. If you play follow the leader and you say, yeah, I'm playing, but then you don't follow anybody, then you don't actually mean to participate in the game. True belief that Jesus is the Lord will result in us striving to follow him despite all of our continual failures, but we can take comfort in knowing that it's not me who does the work anyway, but it's the Holy Spirit, as we saw in the clause before, who is making these things come to fruition because of his consecrating, sanctifying, making holy work. Are you following me? So in other words, God chose you because of love, by his spirit, so that you would believe in Jesus and follow him. And the second purpose is this. Again, it's with that word for, that causal word for. Elect for sprinkling with his blood. Sounds kind of gross. It harkens back to the cutting of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15, would encourage you to go back and read that when God makes the covenant with Abraham and Abraham falls asleep and he sees a dead animal kind of going and having blood sprinkled and all these kinds of things. You see, because in the Old Testament, they would make these things called covenants, which were kind of like promises or, or contracts. 
And then what would happen is if I had a contract, a covenant with you, like our kids were going to get married, what would happen is we'd sacrifice an animal and we'd sprinkle blood. And it's the idea that if the covenant is broken, there's consequence. But God made a new covenant with us by faith where he said, I will cut out your heart of stone. I will replace it with a heart of flesh. I will write my law on your heart. I will breathe the spirit, the consecrating, making Holy Spirit into the dry bones and the dry bones will live. The breath of life will come into them. And Jesus is the sacrifice that gets cut in half and his blood sprinkled. That's why he said at the Last Supper, he said, this is the blood poured out for the new covenant. Every time you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. See, the sprinkling of blood results in forgiveness and purification for us. But all of that is summarized into that we enter into the new covenant with God because of the sprinkling with his blood. See, salvation isn't just an invitation to not go to hell. It is an invitation positively to eternal life through the new covenant in the presence of God because of his love by his Holy Spirit for the sprinkling with his blood. And so if I was going to summarize what I just said, hopefully you followed some of it, but if I was going to summarize it, it's this. God chose you so that you would obediently believe in and follow Jesus and join him in a new covenant relationship. Do you follow me? Thanks, Bonnie. This decision is based upon his love for you before you were even born. And it is made effective ultimately by his spirit in setting you apart for his own enjoyment and good pleasure. What a great gospel we have. You see, these are truths that we shouldn't say, well, I don't understand all the ins and outs of election. That's okay. Because like I often say to my discipleship group, it's like a bunch of ants looking at the undercarriage of a Tahoe and trying to explain it to one another. It's okay that we don't understand all of these nuances. I think there's a sense in which we have to embrace mystery. Because when we systemize it too much, we inevitably try to understand incomprehensible things with finite minds. As Steve, one of our elders, is fond of saying, don't try to unscrew the inscrutable. There you go, Steve. Got some chuckles. <laughs> God chose you so that you would obediently believe in and follow Jesus, joining him in a new covenant relationship. And this is based on his love for you before you were born. It's made effective by the Spirit in setting you apart. And so what we're going to see in the following verses is an answer to this question, what then are the benefits of this relationship for us who believe? What are the benefits? So that's the work of the gospel, to sanctify us, to make us like Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, not my own flesh because I can, you know, resist sin better than you and so therefore I'm holier. No, it's the Spirit making us holy, not the flesh. So what are the benefits? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Into what? Into the new covenant. See, it is that rebirth that comes from the Spirit. You can't become reborn. That's what 
John, uh, that's what Jesus argued with Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, when Jesus says, you must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, which is synonymous with the new covenant. And Nicodemus says, I'm an old man. I can't get born again. Like, I can't like, go climb up into my mom and get born a second time. And Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel, and you're acting like an idiot. <laughs> Basically, paraphrasing of the Bill paraphrase version. It is that rebirth that comes by the Spirit from the work that we just unpacked in those first two verses. And that should, as we see here in verse 3, launch us into praise. It should launch us into worship, that he chose us despite our continued failings, that's mercy, and that he gives us amazing blessings instead, that's grace. And now we are reborn to two things. He says, reborn to, and then he says, reborn to. So to this and to that. These are the grammatical cues you have to look for when you're studying the scriptures. What's the first thing that we are reborn to? What do you see? To a living hope. The first thing that you are reborn to is a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, our hope is alive because we believe in a person who is alive. Without the resurrection, we are a hopeless people. Without the resurrection, we are actually fools. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. We just have wistful thinking. But because he lives, we live. Because he came as the first of a new humanity, we can be reborn into that new humanity because Jesus Christ is the ultimate promised heir and descendant of Abraham, like Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3. And anyone who comes after him by faith is part of a new humanity called the new covenant. Our hope is a future resurrection to eternal life. It is a living, breathing, alive hope. Because Jesus is alive, we will live forever. So we're reborn to a living hope, and we're also reborn to what? To an inheritance. Reborn to a living hope, reborn to an inheritance. For those of you who are following along in, the, in your Bibles, do you see what I'm doing grammatically? if you're paying attention? Okay, good. So he says we're reborn to an inheritance. But there's even more than just getting an inheritance. It doesn't just mean that like I get a, a cut of land or something like that. Mountains of blessings await those who are in Christ Jesus when we are finally reunited with our Creator in His glorious presence. See, in the Old Testament, again, I told you last week that Peter is constantly referencing the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, that word inheritance specifically referred to what? Does anybody know? The promised land. When he talked about the Old Testament inheritance, it referred to the promised land, that they inherited God and they inherited the promised land. So he is saying we have a we are being reborn to an inheritance, but the inheritance we receive is greater than the promised land. That's one of the things that the author of Hebrews argues. Well, what is it like? And here Peter lists three words that each of those words tell us, tells us and describes what our inheritance is like. And look what he says. It's imperishable. In other words, it won't expire like milk. It's undefiled. In other words, you can't mess it up. 
And it's unfading. It's not going to lose its luster. A thousand years from now when you're dead and you've been in glory a long time, you're not going to say, well, this was fun for the first 700 years, but now I kind of miss my boat. That's not what's going to happen. It's unfading, undefiled, imperishable. But when do we get it? It's kept in heaven for you. And so it goes back to what we talked about last week, that right now this is not your home, but we are a people who have hope in the mess because we are reborn to a living hope and we are reborn to a resurrection never to die again, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. And then we end this verse with, or we end this section with this glorious verse that follows a comma at the end of verse 4, talking about you. So you, comma, and this is what Peter has to say about you. You, you too, who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for, sal- for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, the point is this. If you are in Jesus, you are being guarded too by him, which is remarkable, which gives us great comfort when we, when we mess up and we wake up the next morning and we say, man, I'm a loser. I can't believe I did that again. And we are reminded there is a sufficient fountain of blood for your sin. That he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness when we confess. That is the beauty of the gospel. That that John says, dear brothers and sisters, I hope that you don't sin. But when you do, we have an advocate. His name is Jesus. He's guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you are in Jesus, he's guarding you too. The big idea is this. We have hope because we have Jesus, who is our living hope. And hope is how we get through difficult times. We have a future inheritance that is beyond compare to anything we will suffer in this life. Friends, do you realize the lengths dipping back into the ages that God has gone to in order to love you? Do you realize what he has done for you? Can you taste the beauty of his work? Can you begin to fathom, even in a small way, the affection that he carries for you? Do you think now, after all of that, work, being called the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, foreknowing you in love, so much so that he made a promise to a man named Abraham, so that from Abraham's descendants could become the Messiah Jesus, who would get hung on a cross. This is what he has done. Having done all of that, will he abandon you because of political upheaval? Because of a virus? This is what Paul muses about in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Will he who did not spare his own son, 
which, as Piper says, is an impossible thing to imagine, will, will he who did not spare his own son, who gave his son willingly for you, which is the most unthinkable thing that God could ever do, will he now not also freely give you in him all things that are good for you? As Piper says, is an argument from the greater to the lesser. That if God did not deny you this unthinkable, unfathomable thing, why would he deny you less? Some of you are here today because you are being drawn by the Spirit. That's why you showed up. That's why you started coming. That's why you rolled out of bed today versus another day and decided to come. And I want to tell you this, that God is inviting you to surrender to Jesus, to believe in the Lord Jesus, to embrace his death for the forgiveness of your sins and his resurrection for the hope of eternal life. God wants you to believe in the sacrifice that he has provided in Jesus. The question is, will you? And if you never have, we encourage you to, if you came with a friend or a family member who's a follower of Jesus, to speak with them or come and talk with us and pray to make that decision today to surrender to Christ. And for those of you who have and you consider yourselves to be followers of Jesus, remember the hope to which you have been saved. Remember the hope to which you have been saved. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. And it is guarded in heaven for you. And if you are truly in Christ, you are guarded as well. Will you stumble and fall? Yes. But he will always chase you down. Because like I said to some friends this week, quoting Rich Mullins, God is the kind of God who beats you up and then gives you a ride home on his bike. He will chase you down knock you down, put you on his bike, and then give you a ride home. Like a good shepherd, he'll, he'll find you. Remember God's love for you as seen in the gospel. Remember God's purpose for you as seen in the gospel. Remember God's sanctifying work by the Holy Spirit as accomplished in the gospel. Remember God's blessing for you in the gospel. You need these things. And so does the world, so we share the hope that we have in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, our living hope. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would guide us into what we need to hear to make these truths real in our lives. God, the truth is we can't. Your spirit needs to make it real. So I pray that your spirit would show us, even at our tables as we chat, as we drive home, what we need to know and hear. Amen. In the coming minutes, um, I want you guys to talk at your tables for a little bit. You have some discussion questions on the back there um, of, of what to, of things to talk about with your kids specifically. And so if you're not a kid and you're not looking for a stuffed animal to hug, I want you to remember um, or talk with one another about what is your big takeaway and ask the Holy Spirit to show you how he would want you to apply it. And if there's someone in your life that would benefit from hearing about this amazing hope, a believer or someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, either one. All right, and then I'll close us in a few minutes.